We hope you're blessed and encouraged by the following study from Calvary Chapel, Elmani. It's our simple prayer that you would grow stronger and deeper in an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Should you have any questions, please feel free to contact us here at Calvary Chapel, Elmani. Second Samuel chapter 20. As we go through, uh, sometimes some of these historical chapters can be a little tough. And, uh, you know, you're like, well, Lord, um, how does this apply to our life? And, uh, you know, there's always that application. The Bible says that these things were written for our admonition and, uh, and for our learning. And so we learn through the lives of David. And, you know, one of the things about David that is kind of cool is that he, uh, he's a picture of Jesus Christ. And, you know, God blessed the kingdom through his leadership. And so we learn, I think, you know, even in that, as far as some of the things that he did and some of the team that God put together. You know, God anointed David. He wasn't a perfect man, but that was the, the guy that the Lord had chosen. We read that in First Samuel chapter 16. Remember when uh, Samuel came and anointed him with oil and the Holy Spirit came upon him that day. And, uh, and it's so cool. He was on the run for 10 years, but then eventually he became king. And, uh, and God blessed the kingdom under his leadership. But not only David, you know, he had a group of mighty men that served with him that uh, I think, you know, we, we got to make sure that we understand the way that it works. I think that God sovereignly chooses leaders, but he also sovereignly chooses the team that he puts together in any ministry. And uh, I think for us as a church, you know, I always bring that application. I thank God for the people that God has brought to this church, that the Lord has put together. And uh, none of us perfect by any means, but individuals, the Bible says, who are strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And he puts together uh, a group of men and women. Uh, remember when David was out in the, in the caves? You guys remember he was out there? And they, everybody that came to him was discontented and they were in debt. And they were just all messed up, remember? And they kind of all came together and they became David's mighty men. And, uh, and then eventually God used them when David became king. And so we're going to see that today. Uh, that's going to be a large part of it. And, uh, and just some other things tucked away. And so let's go ahead and begin reading here in chapter 20, verse 1. It says, And there happened to be there a rebel whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew a trumpet and said, We have no share in David nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man to his tents, O Israel. Now we pick it up pretty much in this whole scene where David is returning to Jerusalem. He's Remember, Jess got done with dealing with the rebellion of his son Absalom. Absalom's now dead. So he's heading back to the palace, and as he's heading back, there's this individual named Sheba, who the Bible calls a rebel. There in verse 1, the Hebrew word translated rebel, it speaks of an individual who's good for nothing, uh, wicked, destructive. And you know, when you read this right here, it's a trip. It's a bummer, really, because David had just, you know, defeated his son Absalom in a rebellion. He hasn't even made it back to the palace yet. And then another rebellion begins. You know, and life can be like that sometimes, not always. I don't know how you guys are in your walk with the Lord. I know sometimes you go through seasons where it seems like there's, you know, peace and man, it's such a blessing. And then you go through those times where it's just like one trial right after another. 
And it's almost like you can't even, you know, come up for air. That's what David's experiencing. First, Absalom dealing with that, finally coming back. Before he even makes it to the palace, there's another guy named Sheba. And we see that, man, he musters up a division. He musters up a rebellion. John Corson said there is no furlough from the fight of faith. There are no breaks in the battle. And that's why, you know, I, I don't know about you guys, but like every single day, you have to wake up, and for me, spend time with the Lord, get on my knees and pray, you know, and even throughout the day, just every moment, you're always on guard. Because, man, it just seems like sometimes the battles are just following after one, after another. And here we see this whole thing happen to David. Sheba rebels, and for a, a, a temporary period, he divides the nation. He influences the northern tribes of Israel to a certain degree, so that only the southern tribe of Judah remained loyal to David. But here's the thing, look at verse 2. So every man of Israel deserted David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah from the Jordan as far as Jerusalem remained loyal to their king. There's this division going on. Crazy thing, right? And so, you know, this rebellion led by Sheba, we're going to see, however, is short-lived. And in the end, Sheba would die due to his division. And, you know, we really need to guard our hearts. I mean, I thank God this church has been really blessed. And I don't know, you know, some of my say you're speaking too soon, but, you know, we have been really protected from division. I think that God's kept our hearts united. Um, but we have to make sure we maintain that heart of unity. The enemy would love to come in and somehow, some way, through somebody, you know, divide and conquer and we see it happen all the time in other churches and so all of us here need to beware of a rebellious heart lest we find ourselves fighting against god and here's sheba we're going to see in the end he's the one that gets his head cut off because david was the one that was called by god right he was anointed and so he's on his way this whole thing is happening there's one other Kind of a side note issue. Look at verse 3. Now David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten women, his concubines whom he had left to keep the house, and put them in seclusion and supported them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up to the day of their death, living in widowhood. Now, if you remember, uh, these were the ten women that Absalom had slept with at the council of Ahithophel. We read that in 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 22, where it says, So they pitched a tent for Absalom on top of the house, and Absalom went into his father concub father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. And so, you know, when David comes back, there they are. And so he no longer kept them as concubines. He can't, you know, punish them. It wasn't their fault. He can't divorce them. That's not really uh, according to the law. So he provided for them. But they were confined, so to speak, to widowhood for the rest of their lives. And, you know, you might just read by that and think, oh, it's no big deal. You know, it's just ten ladies and you probably, you know, don't really think much about them. But, you know, you, you got to kind of be careful with that. And it's just a sad picture. It's a sad picture, really, not only of Absalom's sin of rebellion and adultery, but really of David's sin of multiple wives and concubines. 
know, when you guys read the Bible, you might see this guy, you know, did you guys know Solomon? What did Solomon have? 300 wives, 700 concubines. Think about that. A thousand women, okay? We can barely handle one. Barely handle one. You know, so I just want you to know that even though we see it, it was a cultural, culturally accepted, it was never, ever condoned or accepted by God. The original marriage, it's always good, back to, good to go back to the origin of marriage. The original marriage, it was Adam and Eve. And that's it, see? But what ends up happening is because of David's sin of having multiple wives, what ends up happening is, man, a lot of people suffer. God never approved it. God meant marriage between, between one man and one woman for a lifetime. And so David here, he deals with the damsels, and then he deals with the rebel. And look what happens in verse 4. And the king said to Amasa, Assemble the men of Judah for me within three days, and be present here yourself. So Amasa went to assemble the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the set time which David had appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he find for himself fortified cities and escape us. And so Joab's men with the Cherethites, the Pelethites, and all the mighty men went out after him, and they went out of Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. As I mentioned earlier, the enemy loves to bring division, and David knew the ultimate danger if Israel was divided. You know, and it's it's important for leaders to kind of be aware of these things. Remember Jesus said in Matthew twelve twenty five that every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And so it's true for a church, it's true for the ministries within the church, it's true for your family. You know, when husband and wife are not on the same page, when they are divided, you know, you might be here and thinking, well, my, my, my wife and I, or whatever, my husband and I, you know, we're always butting heads, and we're still married. We're still, we're, we're doing okay. Are you sure? Don't you realize what would happen if you were united, if your hearts were knit together, if you were one, like the Bible says in the very beginning, it says they were one positionally and they needed to be one practically. You leave and cleave and they become one, one flesh. And the enemy knows that if I can just divide, then I can weaken this house. I can weaken this ministry. I can weaken this church. And so here's Sheba trying to divide the nation. And I trip out on the United States of America. You got Republican, you got Democrats, right? And we're talking about divided, right down the middle. You know, and of course we know Republicans, you know, more in line with what we believe as Christians. But imagine if our country was united. You know, that's what we're seeing here. The enemy's trying to do to Israel. There's a proverbial principle that says even weak things, when they're united, become strong. Right? The enemy knows that, and so he wants to divide us. He has this vision of division. Here's Sheba being used by the enemy to do just that. And so David knows this. As a wise leader, I'm not going to put up with that. So he calls his new general in, this guy Amasa, 
and he instructs him to get his army together and report to the king in three days, right? But Amasa is not able to get his army together in time. And so what does David do? He assigns the job to another man by the name of Abishai and warning him about the danger of Sheba, that it could be worse than Absalom. And he sends him to take care of Sheba before it's too late. And so here's where it gets kind of interesting. And even for me, it's a little unclear. Um, I know some of you have kind of just jumped into the story, but if you remember, uh, part of David's peace plan before coming back to Jerusalem, he said to them, tell the elders of Israel that I will anoint Amasa um, as the general of my army, right? In place of Joab. Joab was his current general, uh, but he says, I'll, I'll, I'll let Amasa be my general. But if you remember, Amasa had been fighting for Absalom, the rebel. In other words, Amasa, his main objective at one time was to kill David. And here David makes Amasa his general as a compromise, right, for the kingdom. And so while this is going on, David is not really seeing eye to eye with Joab, who's his current general, right? I mean, after all, he killed David's son Absalom when David would have preferred a capture over a kill. And so all this is going on. And, and basically what we're, we're going to see today, and I know this is kind of like trippy. You're like, well, what are you talking about? You know, what I'm saying is this, that Joab, I, I believe Joab was supposed to be the general. I believe Joab was supposed to be the general. And just as David was supposed to be the king, Joab was supposed to be the general. And just the way it works in the kingdom of God is the Lord, he puts every single person where he wants them. And, and, it, and it, not the pastor, not the king, not the overseer, they're not the ones who do it. David's not the one who's supposed to do this. God had anointed Joab to be the general. And we're going to see that, even though he's not a perfect man. You know, David didn't like him. He killed my son Absalom, right? I mean, you wouldn't like him if he killed your son, right? But think about it. Absalom was a rebel. He was a complete rebel wanting to kill his father. Maybe Joab was right. See, and we're going to see this whole thing unfold, and it's kind of a trip. You know, I've learned this as a leader, that God not only appoints the leaders, but he also appoints the others in the kingdom. And even though Joab should have done a few things differently, more obediently, he seemed to be, you know, just a, a, a bad dude. How many of you guys here, before you're Christians, you were, you were just a fighter? I mean, just like a, a fighter, man. No one messed with you. I remember when I used to go to high school, there were certain guys that just, they pretty much fought, like, all the time, you know? <laughs> and they always won, you know? And um, that's how Joab was. He was a general. He was called to be the general. He was just a, a crazy dude. I mean, a furious fighter, warrior, soldier. And basically, I think he was the right man for the job. And, you know, leaders like David need to make sure that they don't make it a personal thing. Well, I don't like him. Doesn't matter. God does. He is the right man for the job. Watch if you go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And this whole uh, chapter is a, is a really cool chapter as far as the different parts of the body. And this is important for us to know as a church. 
And, you know, there's no position more important than the other. I mean, yeah, teachers are more accountable, but how could I teach if, you know, there wasn't people taking care of all the other things and, and some of the prayer warriors that God uses, and there you are on your knees, and as the word goes out, their hearts are open because of you, not not me, it's not the teacher. It's together we see this. But but verse 18 is the verse I want to just you know focus on. It says, but now... God has set the members, each one of them in the body, just as he pleased. See, it's the Lord, man. It's the Lord who puts you there. You know, and I pray that would encourage you. You know, it's not man. I mean, if it's man, then it will fail. It will fail if it's man. But if it's God putting you there, then it's so cool, man, it will succeed. And it's not the pastor, and it's not the overseer, it's not the elders, it's not the board members, it's not the deacons. It's God. It says God has set the members, each of them, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And that's kind of what I get out of this chapter. You can go back. I mean, David was the, the king, and Sheba shouldn't have rebelled against him. David was the king. He was the anointed and appointed by God. He would die because he rebelled against that. And Joab was the general. And David shouldn't rebel against that. And so, you know, David tried to get rid of him. And we're going to see he places Amasa over him. When Amasa doesn't come back quick enough, David says, okay, well, then I'll put Abishai to lead the army, right? And uh, and what ends up happening? Look again at, at verse 7. As they begin to take off, it says, So Joab's men, with the Cherethites, the Pelethites, and all the mighty men, they went out after him and went out of Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bikri. Notice again in verse 7, it's Joab's men. And then the other guys are, are guys that were mercenaries, so to speak. David had picked up along the way, but, but they're Joab's men. And then what happens? We read in verse 8, When they were at the large stone, which is in Gibeon, Amasa came before them. Now Joab was dressed in battle armor. On it was a belt with a sword fastened in its sheath at its hips. And as he was going forward, it fell out. And then Joab said to Amasa, Are you in health, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not notice the sword that was in Joab's hand. And he struck him with it in the stomach, and his entrails poured out on the ground and he didn't have to strike him again. Thus he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bikri. Meanwhile, one of Joab's men stood near Amasa and stood, said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David followed Joab. But Amasa wallowed in his blood in the middle of the highway. And when the man saw that all the people stood still, he moved Amasa from the highway to the field and threw a garment over him when he saw that everyone who came upon him halted. And so they're about five miles outside of Jerusalem. They're in Gibeon. And finally, Amasa shows up. You know, he's finally there. Uh, But he only shows up uh, to be killed by Joab, who, when you kind of connect all the dots, you find that Joab is actually his cousin. And, And both of them are David's nephews. And so... You know, when you look at that right there, I mean, and it's kind of kind of ugly, huh, how the way that he kills them. You know, he, he, as some say, he stumbled on purpose in the Hebrew language. He kind of stumbled. And then what fell out was a knife, probably not a sword. 
And so you greet him by grabs him by the beard. How you doing, bro? Are you doing okay? Yeah, and he grabs him by the beard to kiss him, right? And then with the left, boom. He never saw it coming, and he just guts him. He guts him. He doesn't have to do it again. And you might look at that, and you're like, oh, so gross, right? He doesn't deserve to be in David's team. But he's a general. I mean, isn't that what generals are supposed to do, kind of? You know, they, 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 that's their job. They, they got to kill people, man. And Joab, and again, David didn't like it, but I think Joab knew, you know, Absalom is a threat to the kingdom. Amasa, who was the one that, you know, was leading the rebellion against David as well, is a threat to the kingdom. And what we find in the ministry, you guys, is that uh, they were rebels that needed to die. And in one sense, you know, some of you here, you could have never done it, right? Some of you here, you can just too nice. You're too nice, like me sometimes. Huh, if I could say that. I have to admit, to my shame, sometimes I'm too nice. Some of you here could have done it in a split second, right? Yeah, because you're too mean. You're too mean, right? <laughs> This is the way it is. I mean, just, we have different types of people. But if, you know, remember Pastor Chuck, and you guys know Pastor Chuck, his right-hand man, Romaine. Totally, two totally different people. Totally different people. Pastor Chuck, it's all grace. All grace. Romaine, all law. I mean, you would get in your face. I remember one time there's this guy, he had a collar up like that. You know how they used to wear their collars up before? When they were, you know, he just looked at him, man of pride, man of pride, you know, and just, just call him out, just like that. And he would come and he would preach and he would just rebuke us like crazy. But he could do that because that's who he was. And together they balanced each other out, you know. And, and I'm not saying, you know, that you should be mean, but, you know, there's just that. I, I've seen this, the way that God puts people together, they're different. And when I think of a, of a, of a general, of an army, David didn't really want him there, but I think that God did because he had to take care of business. He had to take care of business. And even the church, we need people like that who, we need people very gracious, very gracious, and we need people that just, boom, they take care of business. And God uses both. I pray we wouldn't have any favorites. Kind of like Shelly and I. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. She always says that. She's all, your grace, I'm the law, you know. (laughs) And I don't know, just right, this whole thing right here, David's all, Amasa, you know, you take care of it. And he doesn't get it done in time. Okay, Abishai, you take care of it. On the way they see Amasa, Joab kills him. All the guys are following Joab. It just seems so clear that the Lord had chosen him. We see the emphasis. And look again in verse 11, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David followed Joab. Look at verse 13. When he was removed from the highway, all the people went on after who? Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And so it seems like the Lord is just saying, you know, I'm the one who chooses. In verse uh, 14, it says, And he went through all the tribes of Israel to Abel and Beth, Maaka, and all the Berites. And so they were gathered together and also went after Sheba. And then they came and besieged him and Abel, of Beth, Makkah, and they cast up a siege mound against the city, and it stood by the rampart, and all the people who were with who? Joab, battered the wall to throw it down. I mean, it's just pretty obvious. 
And that's the way it is in the church. The Lord just shows you. He just shows you, okay, I want this person, and they're going to be the administrator. And this person right here, they're going to be, you know, over this ministry. And this person's over this ministry. And it's really cool, you know, when the Lord just puts everything together. Here we see the army reaches the cities of uh, Abel and Beth Maaka, their twin cities, in the far north of Israel. So they've traveled a long ways. And what do they do? They surround the city and they set up a siege mound and they batter the walls to bring them down. And But then look what happens in verse 16. It says, Then a wise woman cried out from the city, Hear, hear, please say to Joab, Come nearby that I may speak with you. And when he had come near to her, the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, Hear the words of your maidservant. And he answered, I am listening. So she spoke, saying, They used to talk in former times, saying they shall surely seek guidance at Abel, and so they would end disputes. I am among the peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city and a mother in Israel. Why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? And Joab answered and said, Far be it, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy that is not so, but a man from the mountains of Ephraim, Sheba, the son of Bichri by name, has raised his hand against the king, against David. Deliver him only, and I will depart from the city. So the woman said to Joab, Watch his head will be thrown to you over the wall. And then the woman, in her wisdom, went to all the people, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. Then he blew a trumpet, and they withdrew from the city, every man to his tent. And so Joab returned to the king at Jerusalem. Now there are a few who say that this city where Sheba was hiding uh, maybe was headed up by this woman, but more than likely the city in their wisdom appointed her as their spokeswoman. She was definitely a wise lady. Have you guys ever noticed how sometimes these hardcore criminals, violent men, gang members will listen to older ladies? Have you guys ever noticed that? I've noticed that. Like if I go up to this guy and I try to talk to him, he'd be like, what? Where are you from? You know? But some older lady comes and talks and then, you know, and then he'll listen. And so here's this, this old lady and she says, call Joab. Let me talk to him. What's going on here? Right? And so he just, you know, we here, this city... We, we were, no, were known for wisdom. We're known for peace. I mean, whenever anybody had problems, they would actually come to us. We're a peaceable city. And some even say when she refers to uh, destroying a mother that it was known as kind of like a mother city, a big city, because it was a walled city. And so she's asking him, what are you doing? And Joab said, here's the problem. There's a guy in there. There's the one man in there who's creating this whole problem. There's one man. He's a terror. He's a problem. His heart is not right. And, and he's raised his hand against the king. And so just tell you what, you know, you, we, that's the one we're after. And so this lady, kind of like, she's a female Joab, I guess. It's no problem. So, hey, cut his head off, right? Cut his head off, throw it over. Joab throws a trumpet. It's done, right? And God says, this is what I'm going to do to rebels. That's what happens to Sheba. And so she says, is that it? Heads up, you know, and she throws the head. And 
You know, Sheba wanted to get ahead, but instead he lost his head, right? Sheba was executed and the rebellion was put down. And you know, you guys, we have to beware of rebellion. I hope there's no hint of rebellion in your heart. First Samuel chapter 15, verse 23 says, Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Okay, so let's be careful. Praise God for her wisdom. She ends up saving the whole city. And then we read, and here it is. It's kind of interesting. David's administration, it says in verse 23, And Joab was over. Notice it starts with Joab. Joab was over all the army of Israel. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. Adoram was in charge of revenue. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahidud, was a recorder. Shiva was scribe. Zadok and Abiathar were the priests. And Ira, the Jairite, was a chief minister under David. And here we see the list of the king's important officials Kind of similar to what we read earlier in chapter 8, verse 15 through 18, except for this time, David's sons aren't mentioned. And so, you know, just kind of going through history, 1022 BC, these are the things that took place. But I think one of the messages, uh, aside from, you know, being careful not to be a rebel, is even emphasized here in the end, how God says, these are the people, this is the team that I put together. And I know you guys, um, we as a church, you know, we, we also are like this team that God's putting together. And some of you are signed up for ministry, you know, you're all signed up and you come to the ministry meetings. Some of you aren't, but you're still a part of this church, you know, and you're praying and you're, you're giving and you're attending and you're worshiping and together, man, together, I am so excited at what God is doing. And so it's cool to see the way that the Lord just breaks it all down and puts a team together. And it's important for us. God chooses the leaders like David, and David also needs to know that God chooses the rest. But then look what happens in verse 1, chapter 21. It says, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. Now this is something interesting, you know. Um, there's a famine in the land. And, you know, I think that, you know, when we go through, you know, there are struggles in life. And, you know, maybe, you know, you know things that we don't understand. It's good to ask the Lord. Lord, is there something that I'm not doing right? Is there something, Lord, that I'm guilty of? I think it's absolutely okay to ask the Lord if there's, if there's sin in my life. You know, David here, it's kind of cool, he inquires of the Lord. After three years of famine, Lord, you know, what's going on? And the Lord reveals it. Well, back in Joshua uh, chapter 8 and chapter 9, you read about the Gibeonites and how Israel had made a covenant with them to protect them, right? They tricked them. It was not a good thing. But um, they didn't make a covenant with them nonetheless. However, what happened when Saul became king, he broke that covenant. He broke that covenant. And so now in God's justice, and when God deals with nations, it's different than when he deals with individuals. Did you guys know that every single nation will be judged on planet Earth? Every nation will be judged on planet Earth. Not every person, 
Some people are going to die and they're all, oh, they had this great life. But if they don't know Jesus Christ, they're going to die after, they're going to be judged afterwards. So individuals, it's different. But nations, especially Israel, who was a theocracy, a covenant nation, they would be judged on earth. And so because they violated that covenant, you know, God, God didn't give them rain. And that was a big thing, right? And so David asked the Lord, and the Lord said, this is what's going on. This is what happened. And so we read in verse 2, the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. And then the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. Therefore David said to the Gibeonites, well, what shall I do for you? And what shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said to him, We will have no silver or gold from Saul or from his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. And so he said, Well, whatever you say, I will do for you. Then they answered the king, As for the man who consumed us and plotted against us, that we should be destroyed from the remaining in any of the territories of Israel, let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. And the king said, I will give them. Now when I read this right here, I, I think, wow, Lord, this is tough. You know, the, David says, well, we've got to deal with this. You know, and this is a little different, but I think there needs to be more restitution in the church you know i remember Bancho one time he talked about how you know he used to work at jack-in-the-box before he was a christian and then when he became a christian he actually went back and he and he paid the money that he had ripped off from them when he worked there at jack-in-the-box you know and and to me i think that we don't we don't really do that a whole lot we're like i'm sorry and then and then we don't get really creative in trying to make things right with people, you know. And here the Lord just says, well, you guys are guilty of, you know, slaying the Gibeonites after you made a covenant with them. And so David's all, well, I can't just say I'm sorry. It doesn't just work like that. I'm sorry, okay, let's just sweep it under the rug and let's go on with life. No, you got to make it right. See, and it's, it's a justice, right, that God has in his heart. And we see that even ultimately on the cross. I mean, why couldn't we just say, I'm sorry? Why couldn't we just like, okay, I'm going to be a God follower from now on. And, you know, I'm not going to, you know, get high anymore or have sex before marriage or, or do drugs. I'm not going to cuss anymore or write our movies or whatever, you know. And it's because that doesn't satisfy the justice of a holy God. Somebody's got to pay for the sins, Right? And that's what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, you know? That's why it had to be his son. You see, when we sinned against God, it was an infinite offense because it was a sin against an infinite being. It wasn't a civil offense or a federal offense. It was an infinite offense against God, and therefore, they required an infinite payment. The only one that could do that was God. And so that's why Jesus Christ came and died on the cross for our sins. And he suffered for us. And he suffered that infinite wrath of his father. And so, you know, there's that picture here of justice. He, the Gibeonites say, well, this is what we want. 
you know, uh, I think this will kind of even things out, so to speak. Seven descendants of Saul are to be killed and hung before the Lord. And so David obliges them. In verse 8, the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, and the five sons of Michal, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mehalathite. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the hill. Notice, it's interesting, before the Lord. Sounds weird, huh? But you know, I think we forget. I think we forget how holy God is. There they are before the Lord. And so they fell, all seven together, and were put to death in the days of harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of barley harvest. So we read in verse 10, Now Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until the late rains poured on them from heaven. And she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. And David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done. And then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan his son from the men of Jabesh-Gilead who had stolen them from the street of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hung them up after the Philistines had struck down Saul in Gilboa. And so he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan his son from there, and they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan his son in the country of Benjamin, in Zelah, in the tomb of Kish his father. And so they performed all that the king commanded. And notice this. And after that, God heeded the prayer for the land. You know, lately, this has been really, really heavy on my heart. Does God, as, does God answer your prayers? Does he really, is he really answering your prayers? You know, and I, it's weird, you know, maybe some of you are really good at this, but, you know, sometimes I think we can lose track. And I think sometimes we can really be really vague in our prayers, really vague, where you wouldn't even know if God answers your prayers or not. And part of the reason I think that you're really vague or we can be really vague is because in the back of our mind, we don't even really believe that God answers prayer sometimes. But lately, the Lord has been showing me, and I, I'm even thinking about doing a, a Bible college class on this, um, is, is just, you know, that cultivating an excellent prayer life to where you pray and you really believe, you hold God to it. And a week later, what I, what I do is I check, did God answer that prayer? And then a week later I check, did God answer that prayer? Is there anything going on? And I have a couple of friends and we're praying for our sons, and, you know, and we're doing it, you know, every day at 12 o'clock and, and I'm, I'm measuring, I'm, I'm gonna, you know, how's your son doing? Is God answering your prayers? You know, and if not, you know, then you kind of gotta check your life. You know, the Bible says, if we harbor iniquity in our hearts, if we hold on to it, then God's not going to hear our prayer. First Peter chapter 3, verse 7 says, Husbands, if you're not cool with your wife, then your prayers will be hindered. You know, and that's what we see happened right here is, 
You know, they're praying for rain, they're praying for rain, they're praying for rain. They're not getting rain. Why? Because there's sin. And so all I know is that, man, once they took care of it, and it's so cool the way that this lady, she didn't want the birds to land on the bodies. Back in those days in Israel especially, and I think, of course, even today, you know, um, for a body to not be buried, in Israel they bury the bodies immediately, but for a body not to be buried was an absolute, absolute, you know, um, tragedy. And so David accommodated them. He even brought the bones of Saul and Jonathan, and he, and he buried them all together with the descendants of Saul. But it's interesting to me, in looking at this, you guys, I want to challenge you, you know, from this day forward, make a prayer journal, and you begin to pray. And sometimes God says no because it's not his will, right? Sometimes things aren't happening because we're not really asking or we're not really believing. But, you know, you, you make that prayer journal and you, start, and you start really following up on those prayers or how so-and-so doing in their situation with cancer, you know, and how's my son and how's my daughter in this situation or whatever it might be. And, and, and when you find yourself, hey, God's not ask, answering, then you really check your heart. Lord, is there anything that needs to change? Because I believe that as Christians, we should have a very, very powerful prayer life. And so we read in verse 15, it's interesting, David's getting older. It says, And when the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David and his servants with him went down and fought against the Philistines, and David grew faint. Then Ishbi Benobo, who was one of the sons of the giants, the weight of whose bronze spear was 300 shekels, who was bearing a new sword, thought he could kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, and he's the brother of Joab, he came to his aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. Now, back in uh, the early days, David was 50 years old. He was supposed to go out to battle, and he didn't go out to battle. And that's when he fell into sin with Bathsheba. But there does come a day, you know, when things change a little bit. How many of you here are getting older? Well, I don't see anybody here. Uh, no one's old enough here. <laughs> you know, but, but man, you know, the day will come, you guys. The day will come when we got to pass the baton. And that's okay. You know, you pass the baton and you have to do things maybe a little different. You know, because they knew that if I could smite the shepherd, I can scatter the sheep. They knew if David dies, then it changes everything. He's like, you know, the lamp of Israel. And so, you know, it's so cool the way that his men, I love the way they had his back. I love the way they had his back. And they come and kill these giants. And you want to know something, you guys? It, it wasn't the men. It was the Lord. See, that anointing that God had given to David to slay giants, because remember when he killed Goliath, that's how it all started, right? I mean, that anointing and they, David's faith, that spilled over into the hearts of the men all around him. And the next thing you know, you know they're killing giants. And that's kind of the way it should be in our life. And I pray that in one sense, we would all have that heart of David. Acts chapter 13, verse 22. God said he was a man after my own heart. And that we would have faith. And that we would be godly men 
and godly women, women, and and then that would spill over into many lives all around you. That would spill over into the lives of your children. That's what happened with David and his guys. I mean, this guy, you know, he kills the giant, and we read in verse 18, now it happened afterward that there was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob, and then uh, Sibekai the Hushathite killed Saph, who was one of the sons of the giant. Again, there was war at Gob with the Philistines, where Ilhanah, the son of Jaara or Game, the Bethlehemite killed the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And yet again, there was war at Gath, where there was a man, check this out, of great stature, who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. 24 in number. And he also was born to the giant. So when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, killed him. These four were born to the giant in Gath and fall by the hand, how interesting it says, the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. What does that tell you? It tells you that under David's leadership and with that same heart and with that same spirit, just like David killed Goliath way back in 1 Samuel chapter 17, when it all started, that heart, that although he had his ups and downs, it never changed. He loved the Lord. And what ends up happening is it spills over into the lives of others. And we're passing the baton always, you guys. One thing I've learned is that, you know, you might think, well, we're just having in and out right now. Or you might just think, oh, we're just kind of hanging out, having a cup of coffee, that this is not really important time. You know, I've noticed this. It's always important time. When you're with the brothers and sisters and you're just sharing and you're talking, you know, and I, last night we got together with a, a young couple and they told me something I told them like maybe like six months ago that the Lord just used and it stuck to them and it changed their life. See, and that's what God wants to do in us and that's what God wants to do through us. You know, think about that, killing giants. And I was thinking about this church and I was just like, wow, Lord, we're so blessed. Um, we're so blessed. But Lord, I know you want to do so much more. I mean, there are giants out there. There are people out there that are just so lost. There are enemies here in Almania. I remember when we first started the church, the Lord showed me. Um, and I know it sounds kind of weird, but you know, just different demonic entities that have strongholds in Almani. And when I think of these demonic entities, I think of kind of like giants that need to be slain. And so my prayer is that, you guys, that we would, that we would begin to raise just that banner, man, to, to rise up and to just have that faith, to be soldiers. Like it says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Let's close with that passage, you guys. Um, I love what Paul writes to Timothy. David's men were men of, they were called mighty men of, of valor. And what that literally means is men of heroic courage. Now, not, not for your glory, not for your glory, okay? It's not like we want to be the hero, but you guys, we've seen some of those pretty cool movies, huh? Where that, that one guy or that person, they make a difference. You know, they save the day. They save 
the city. They saved the damsel. Sometimes they even saved the world. You know, not that we want that glory, but that we want to be able to be used by God to be able to save lives. And so, you know, we read about David and all his soldiers. And look what he says here in 2 Timothy 2. He says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You know, a lot of times we think, well, but I'm not me, Lord. I'm not, I just, I mess up too much. Well, I'm not saying go ahead and mess up, but the grace of God washes away all your sins. And the grace of God gives you a new start. And by the grace of God, don't take yourself out of the battle. If he wants to take you out, he will. But by the grace of God, you've got to be strong and accept his forgiveness. Accept his forgiveness. That grace is in Christ Jesus. And he says, the things you've heard from me, commit to many men, among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And that's just passing the baton one generation to a next generation to a next generation to a next. And he says, here it is. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So here you are tonight, and you're like, well, but I, it's just, it's, I know it's just too difficult. I don't like this. I don't like that. I don't like this. Things aren't like peachy king or smooth or hunky-dory. Welcome to the ministry. You're going to be tested. You're going to be tested. It's not easy. You must therefore endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And so you got to be careful of that hardship. Don't let it take you out. But then he says this, and we'll close with this. He says, No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. You're in a war. You're a soldier, right? And as a soldier, I mean, we're in the, in the, in the world. We have affairs in this life. we got to do things, right? But don't entangle yourself with the affairs of this life. Why? What's the main reason? The main reason is this, so that you can please him who enlisted you as a soldier. And I've learned this in life because you're like, well, how does the church run? And maybe we should read books and programs and you know, try to whatever, do this and that, and you know, to make the church grow or to make it more effective or make it more fruitful. But you want to know something? That's not how it happens. You're, gonna, you're not going to have a real good ministry or church if you do it that way. If we just have a heart to please him who enlisted us as soldiers, then God will take care of everything else. See? And that's where we have to be, you guys. Please the Lord. Man. Be so careful because the things of this world, they will suck you down so quick you won't even see it coming. You have to guard yourself. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. There is a greater cause. There is a greater kingdom. There is a greater calling on our lives. And I pray that we would be caught up in that, you guys. Because the Lord is so good, man. He really is. And so let's pray. Father, we thank you for allowing us to study your word together, Lord. I pray. We hope you were encouraged by this study. If you have any questions, please call us at Calvary Chapel El Monte at air code 
3414. Remember that Jesus loves you.